Our text this morning is John chapter 20, if you'd like to be turning there. If you need a Bible, you'll find one somewhere in uh, the pew in front of you. And uh, if you're using that Bible, you'll find that on page 906. We've been in a series on the book of Mark, but for uh, Monday, Thursday, this past week, we were in John chapter 19 and now John chapter 20 for Easter, which reminds me, happy Easter. It's good to be with you all on this day of great celebration for us certainly as a congregation, but for the church, as the church worldwide celebrates again in this very pointed way the resurrection of Christ. So it's a joy to be with you this morning. Let me pray for us, and then we'll jump right in with John chapter 20. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we thank you for it especially this morning on Easter, as all of your word proclaims you as Lord and the risen Christ, and here we see that spelled out so clearly. Lord, we remember on this uh, Easter morning The new reality we've been brought into because of Jesus. Would you open our eyes afresh to that this morning? Would you speak to us? Some of us come this morning joyful and ready and glad to be here. Others of us maybe not so sure. Maybe surprised we're even sitting in a church right now. Uh, Maybe feeling pretty ambivalent about that given past church experiences. Maybe wondering if you really would speak to us. If this really is your word. Wherever we are this morning, would you meet us by the power of your spirit? that you might be glorified in our lives. We ask this in the name of Jesus, the risen one. Amen. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, and while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran, and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, And said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and he went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white standing, excuse me, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher, And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they, saw the Lord, that the Lord, that when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from anyone, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. If you were with us on Monday, Thursday, you know we read from John chapter 19 as we talked about the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and in that we talked about the fact that Throughout Scripture, in many places, you will, see, you will see passages that give voice to our suffering and to the very real pain and struggle of life. The Psalms are filled with psalms of lament as faithful believers come and pour out their broken hearts to God. And as we saw in John chapter 19, as it speaks of the crucifixion, we, we, we saw Scripture describing for us the most tragic and sad of days as the author of life himself was killed at the hands of men. We see there that in the gospel, in the good news of what Jesus has come to do for us, there is indeed a, a, a minor key that gives voice to the suffering and the pain that we still experience in life. But this morning, we turn to the major key. We turn to the predominant theme of what it means to live in relationship with God. And we see here that it is a life that is given to us, a life that is now characterized by joy. Not one that ignores the hard parts of life, but one that takes up the hard parts of our lives and swallows them up in the greater purpose and accomplishment of God. That for Christians, for those following Jesus, the dominant theme of our life is to be one of joy. And that joy comes to us because of Easter. Because Easter colors everything else for Christians. It brings greater depth to the good in life. It brings compassion and understanding combined with deep hope in the midst of suffering and loss and brokenness. And it is the reason that in God's kingdom, the song of life, the one that doesn't ignore the minor chords, is nevertheless one of deep and profound joy. Because of Easter, we can be people of joy. We're going to see this morning here in John chapter 20, this Easter joy, that it comes because of three things that we see before us. This, this passage is full of so much. We're going to look at three things here. An empty tomb and a newfound peace, and a welcoming voice. Those, those three things here in John 20. So first, we see this joy that comes from an empty tomb. You notice as the story opens up, here Mary comes before the sun is even arisen on this Sunday morning, and she comes uh, to the tomb of Jesus because he was buried in haste before the sun went down on the Sabbath and everybody had to cease their work. So she now comes at the earliest possible moment so that they can finish the work of preparing Jesus' body for burial. 
She comes as this act of love to care for him. And as she comes, even in the gloom, she looks up and she sees that the the stone that had been rolled in front of the tomb has now been rolled away. And how does she react when she sees that? She sees the stone gone. She looks and breaks into the chorus of, you know, Christ the Lord is risen today. No, she looks and says, they have taken the Lord. She looks and she sees the stone that's rolled away. She guesses that it must be empty. And she says, grave robbers have come and stolen him away. What has happened? She runs and she tells two other disciples, Peter and this one uh, who ambiguously refers to himself as you know, the, the other disciple who is there, likely uh, the, uh, the apostle John, the writer of this book of John, in a characteristically self-deflective way is referring to himself. So likely we've got John and Peter here. And they have a race. John suddenly says, I got there first, I beat Peter. <laughs> and he gets, he gets there and he, see, he looks in and he sees, he sees the grave clothes. And then, but he won't go in. And Peter comes running up behind him and you know, characteristically kind of elbows his way in. And he, and he walks into the tomb and, and he sees those grave clothes too. And he sees uh, the, the cloth that would have been wrapped around Jesus' head lying by itself over in a corner as it's been neatly folded and the rest has just fallen away. We don't know what they know yet, but certainly at this point they would know the body hadn't been stolen because if somebody was going to do that, they wouldn't have gone to the trouble of of unwrapping it now uh, and leaving the cloth there. But what's very clear here from the very beginning for everybody involved is they didn't think Jesus had had risen from the dead. That was not their expectation. Now, it's easy for us as we read this story maybe and as modern, postmodern people, we look back and say, well, you know, in the first century, they were not as scientifically advanced as we were. They had a different set of expectations. And, you know, who, you know they probably bought this in a much more gullible way than you or I might have if we were there. But the truth is, they weren't expecting this. Jesus had been speaking to his disciples and saying, Look, on the third day, I'm gonna, they're going to deliver me over. I'm going to die. And on the third day, I'm going to re- rise from the dead. And they didn't get it here. It's not what Mary thought. It's not what Peter thought. It's not what John thought. They lived in a world uh, that, you know, that thought about dead people just like we do. And they had a category for ghosts. And uh, in the uh, Greco-Roman world that, that these readers would have been a part of, that, uh, you know, that would have been hearing this story as well, that, you know, for Greeks, the, the ideal of death was not that eventually that you would be resurrected and put back into your body. Instead, the whole ideal was that at death we would be released from this, this flesh that, that keeps us bound and imprisoned. We would be finally set free. For a Greek, the last thing you would want to hear is that you got stuck back in your body. So they wouldn't have expected that. And for, for the Jews, there was a, a great division among Jewish thought. There were some uh, who thought that there was no ultimate resurrection from the dead. The, the New Testament makes reference to this. The Sadducees, some of the... Jewish leaders were proponents of this, that when you die, you die. And there were others who followed the, the Pharisees that thought that Scripture taught that, you know, eventually that we would actually be raised again from the dead. But here's the thing. Even those that believed in resurrection, they knew that resurrection came at the very last day when God comes back on the day of judgment and puts all things right. That's when the dead was raised, were raised. But they didn't have a category for somebody getting raised up in the middle So when they come to the tomb, seeing Jesus raised from the dead is the last thing they expect. Because just like we, they know that dead people are dead. And they don't get up and walk away. You see, the tomb, the empty tomb for them was a surprise. It was a surprise to them just as it is for us. But the other thing that we see and, and is developed throughout the New Testament and Scripture, in fact, is that the resurrection is the linchpin of the Christian faith. 
It is the thing that holds it all together. And if it is not true, then everything else falls away. You see, Christianity is rooted in the historical claim that Jesus really did rise from the dead, a literal bodily resurrection. Because when these people were speaking of the resurrection of Jesus, that resurrection that shouldn't be happening, yet they come to see actually had. The good news for them was not that Jesus had somehow mysteriously and spiritually been risen in our hearts. As if it were that alone, they said, no, there was a dead Jesus who is now alive and we cannot explain it other than to say that God has raised him up to new life and vindicated him and proven him to be the coming king that he said that he was. Resurrection for them was not a metaphor. And, and we see that John goes out of his way to show us that he's, he's got a real body. When you look and Mary comes and he, he turns and he says, Mary, and she realizes it's Jesus. Um, if, depending on your translation, if you're reading the NIV, it says something like, don't touch me. A, a better translation is what, what we get in ESV where it says, don't cling to me. Okay, the idea is not, no, 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 Mary, don't, don't touch me. I'm this sort of ethereal spiritual being and, you know, I'll, I'll disappear if you touch me. Instead, likely what, what has happened here is Mary, in her joy at seeing Jesus, she's probably fallen down on the ground and wrapped her arms around his legs and said, Jesus, and he is saying, it's okay, let me go. You know, I'm, I'm not going anywhere. Don't cling to me, Mary. I haven't yet ascended to the Father. I'm here. I'm real. Now go tell my brothers that I am back. I will see them. When he comes and sees the disciples, you know, this resurrected body of Jesus where they, they know it's him and yet somehow transformed too. There they are huddled that night in, a, in, a, in, in this little room that the disciples where they're hiding from the, from the authorities. They don't know if what was done to Jesus is, is coming their way next and they're scared. And suddenly in the middle of this locked room, Jesus just uh, appears. But again, not a ghost. I mean, others, other of the gospel accounts talk about Jesus eating dinner with them. Hey, give me some fish. I've got a real body here. And he says to them, look, look at my wounds. These are real wounds. It's not a hallucination. And even later, when he finally appears again and appears to Thomas, he says, come and touch my wounds. Put your hand right here in my side. It is the real thing. I am here in the flesh. You see, Christianity stands or falls on the reality of the resurrected Jesus. And as I said, if this isn't true, we should all, we should all just pack it up and go home right now. In fact, that's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 in slightly different words. But he says it this way. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain and your faith is in vain. We have even been found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Do you hear what he's saying? If this isn't really true, then it is all over for us. No resurrection, no forgiveness. No resurrection, no new life. No resurrection, no renewed relationship in life with God. But we see in Scripture, and the testimony that's given to us is that it is true, that it is real. And then Jesus comes, and in doing this, in being resurrected from the dead, he comes and defeats death. Uh, John Owen, a 17th century English theologian, uh, wrote a book about the, the death of Christ and what it means, and he gave it this great and very helpful title, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. That's what happens as Christ dies and is raised again. 
new life, the defeat of death, not only for Jesus, but for all his followers. This is our hope that we too will be resurrected just as Jesus was. Again, uh, back to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O death, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What's he saying? Christ was raised from the dead, and that is the guarantee for his people that we will one day be raised from the dead as well. Where Jesus goes, we go. He went to death, but he rose from the dead that he might one day raise his own people as well. Hebrews chapter 2 puts it this way. Since therefore the children, meaning us, share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through, who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What's he saying? He's saying death for us is a slave master. It is this dark hand that has its grip around us, And even as we live, we can feel and know the inevitability of its approach. But the gospel proclaims to us that for us in Christ, that is not the end because resurrection is the end. It was for Jesus and it will be for us. That's what awaits God's people. Life renewed, made whole, made clean and perfect, put back together the way it was meant to be. That means for us, even now, for followers of Jesus, that there is freedom from the fear of death, that it has even now lost its sting, that it has even now been robbed of its victory. And though we will taste death once, it will not be the final death, and we will be raised again. New hope, new life for us in Jesus. See, we see this joy of an empty tomb. We also see here that because of Easter, we now have this joy of a newfound peace. Do you see how often Jesus mentions peace in this passage? Three times he comes and he greets his disciples and he says, Peace be with you. It was very common Hebrew greeting, shalom, peace to you. But it's uh, though it was a common greeting with Jesus now, we see this deeper resonance that goes straight through the Old Testament of what this idea of shalom and peace was meant to be. It was meant to be this idea, not simply of the absence or the break of hostilities, as if enemies were simply taken away like the enemy of death. But instead, it's, it's not just the absence of something, it is the presence of something positive, healing, reconciliation, universal flourishing. When this greeting of peace was given, it was this greeting of God's peace rest on you, a peace that defeats death and brings reconciliation and healing and life. When Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, looks at his people and says, peace be with you, he is talking about this kind of full and life-embracing peace that comes to us through the resurrection. This is the gospel. Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 1 says, There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. 
the forgiveness of sins, the restoration of relationship with God, this fullness and wholeness of peace that has been given to us. And it's a peace that brings relational healing between us and God. And it's one that brings peace between us and others. And we read in Scripture, too, in Ephesians, it's one that's going to bring peace and restoration to the entire universe. It encompasses it all. This relational peace is what Paul gets to in Galatians 3. He says this, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you who are baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Seeing this peace that has comes brings us back into relationship with God and with each other. There are no more ethnic boundaries that separate us, Jew and Gentile. There are no gender barriers that would keep us apart from each other. In that sense, he says, no male and female. No more dividing walls between us and others or between us and God. He comes. And in the joy of Easter, we see the joy of this newfound peace that has come to transform everything. But finally, we hear this peace spoken to us. Because we see here, thirdly and finally, the joy of a welcoming voice. The welcoming voice of Christ. We see Him speaking to two folks here. First, we see Him calling, speaking to Mary. Back in verses 11 through 18. Mary comes to the tomb and the other disciples come. and They leave and then there's Mary weeping outside the tomb and then she looks in the tomb she sees two angels say why are you weeping they've taken my lord she looks out and she sees somebody outside and thinks it's the gardener who says you're why are you weeping whom are you looking for and mary's answer is full of subtext there I'm, i'm i'm looking i'm looking for jesus i'm looking for the crucified dead man that I thought was Lord and his body has now been moved. She says this to Jesus who is saying, whom are you seeking? Because he's saying you are seeking the wrong one because that one does not exist. Here I am, the resurrected Jesus. The one who brings more than even you knew, Mary. And she sees this when he turns to her and speaks her name. Mary. And her eyes are opened and she hears the voice of her Lord and her Savior, Jesus, speaking to her. And he says, Mary, I'm back. Go and tell the disciples that I'm here. And just to pause on this for a minute, it is remarkable that he has this conversation with Mary. You notice he didn't have it with John and Peter. They didn't even see the angels. (laughs) They come and see the empty grave cloths and off they go. And here is Mary, though, and she is given this incredible privilege of being the very first person to see the resurrected Christ and to be the, become the messenger that would go back to the other disciples and say, you will not believe it. He is back. He is here. He is raised from the dead. It's an unbelievable gift. It would be an unbelievable gift for anyone. Here she is, immortalized in Scripture, the first one to see Christ. But it's even more remarkable because in their very patriarchal society, the testimony of women was almost entirely disregarded. And so the fact that you have, uh, you know, that you are telling the world about a resurrected Jesus, something that nobody would have a category for, in the ancient world, if you wanted to convince people of that, you're going to try to build as strong a case as you could, and the last thing you would tell everybody is, oh, and by the way, the first person that saw her was a woman. Because in their culture, it would have carried no weight, which tells us a couple things. One, 
Jesus giving incredible dignity to Mary in the midst of a society that maybe didn't give her the dignity she should have. But secondly, I think it speaks to us, too, of the authenticity of the report here. I mean, again, if you were making this story up in that world, this is not the way it would go. This would work against you instead of for you. And here we have this authentic picture of Jesus appearing to Mary. And we hear this story now given to us in Scripture because that's the way it went down. That's how it happened. And Mary goes and gives this news to the disciples. He calls Mary. But he calls someone else in this passage too. Verses 24 through 29 when he meets Thomas. Thomas was not there that night of Easter night when Jesus appeared to the disciples in, in this locked room. And so at some point later that week they connect with him and they say, they, they say, Thomas, we've seen the risen Lord. And he says, no, I don't believe it. I won't believe it. Unless he comes back and I put my fingers in the scars, I will not believe. And here again, you're telling the world about the risen Jesus and we've got major space given to somebody who doesn't even believe the news when it comes. We see Thomas and we see his doubt. There are a lot of kinds of doubt and a lot of kinds of doubt that people bring to Jesus and bring to the resurrection. But here we see this, uh, the, the doubt of a self protective and disappointed cynic because he had put his faith in Jesus and he saw that hope die on Good Friday as Jesus died on the cross. He saw the dead body, saw him haul it away, saw him put it in the tomb and now he had spent years of his life building his life around Jesus and all of it was gone like dust blown away before his very eyes. So y'all might believe it. I don't know what you ate for dinner that night. I don't know what kind of hallucinations you're having. I don't know what kind of ghosts you've seen. But I won't believe it unless he comes back and lets me put my finger into his wounds. And remarkably, Jesus comes and he does speak to Thomas. And he speaks to Thomas's doubt. And he handles his doubt in such an amazing way. On the one hand, he speaks to his doubt. He honors it. He, he gives it the validity of addressing it. And at the same time, immediately after, he calls Thomas out of his doubt. Don't stay there. He meets him where he is. And he says, uh, he comes to Thomas. He doesn't rebuke him. Doesn't chastise him for his lack of faith. Jesus isn't threatened by his lack of faith and his doubt. He's very patient with him. And we should be patient, too, with those who struggle with doubt. And at times, patient with ourselves as we do at times ourselves. He comes to him, and instead of pushing him away, he invites him in. He takes Thomas at his words. Thomas, bring your finger over here. Put it, put it right here. Come and touch that you might believe. See, because even as he does that, as he gives weight to his doubt, he is calling him out of it. He says, do not disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. Leave your doubt, leave your fear behind. And Thomas does respond. We saw that Mary is given this incredible gift of being the first to see the resurrected Jesus, the first to bring the news. Well, Thomas, we see him immortalized here in the pages of Scripture too, as he gives this first post-resurrection, very concise statement of this incredible mystery that has come and flattened them all. He looks at Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. 
in a way that Thomas probably couldn't even articulate or explain theologically at that point. He now sees that Jesus is somehow God himself in the flesh raised from the dead. And those lips are the ones that ring from doubting Thomas's lips. My Lord and my God, as he steps out of his doubt and into faith. See, Jesus comes and he speaks to, he calls Mary and he calls Thomas. And of course he calls us as well. Look with me again at verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. See, John comes and he speaks these words and he gives us this testimony of a woman seeing Jesus running to the disciples, of a hardened cynic having his heart melted, as he sees the reality of the resurrected Christ. In fact, all of the book of John, testimony to us, he says it's written that you may believe. Jesus' words to Thomas are the same ones to us. That you may stop disbelieving and believe. We haven't been at the tomb ourselves. We haven't seen Jesus appear in a locked room on our own. But what do we have? We have here this gift of testimony that is given to us so that we too might believe. What are you going to do with that? The testimony given to us here. Are we going to miss Jesus, this Jesus, miss God at work in our life because we have to hear the story from someone else? Or are we going to also enter into the story into which we have been invited? You see, and let me just conclude with this, Easter demands that we respond with appropriate weight demands a response from us because what we read here is it's either it's either a hoax or an outright lie maybe or it's the truth jesus really is raised from the dead but there's one option that's not left open to us we can't simply come to a church service on on easter morning or read the story and walk away and say you know easter just gives me such a nice religious feeling Because Jesus didn't come back simply to do that. This story tells us it is either true or it is not. And if it is true, then now everything is changed because Jesus is raised from the dead to new life and he calls us to that life as well. Even now, even today, tastes of this life, finding a life now oriented and centered around this Jesus, this resurrected Lord. Because, as Christians have said, through the ages... As we have said even this morning, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Amen.